Good morning, everyone. Um, if you've got the Bible in the pew, it's on page 948. We're reading Ephesians verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is, his work within, that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Sam, for your testimony. That's so good. Welcome to Trinity. It's so good to see you. I look forward to Sundays so much. Uh, so glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. We're really glad you're here. We look forward to getting to know you as well. We as a church have been in the book of Ephesians, New Testament book of Ephesians, throughout the course of this semester. And we're looking at God's vision for the church. We're calling it God's masterpiece, which comes from Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's masterpiece created in him to walk in good works that he planned for us from long ago. And so it's so great to be opening this book and studying with you. What we're looking at today is sort of a, a pause in the teaching of Ephesians. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul has been doing all of this sort of theological teaching, teaching us about the gospel, the core message of Christianity. And then here before he transitions to the second half of the book, which is a little bit more practical, he, he pauses. It's, it's an interruption in the flow of teaching, and he offers up a prayer. It's a prayer for inner transformation. It's a prayer that, that we wouldn't just know God on an intellectual level, but that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So in other words, not that knowledge is bad, not that we don't need knowledge, but that we would have an, a relationship with God that surpasses knowledge. So with knowledge as the base, a relationship of experience of abiding in Christ. Now, even somebody with such great theology as the Apostle Paul or being in a great church like Ephesians, there is still such a tendency to have a dry or shallow or hollow faith. Over and over and over again, we have to put ourselves back in the presence of God for renewal in His Spirit in his word. And this is maybe an, an odd illustration, especially to start with, but I couldn't get out of, it out of my mind this week. Uh, maybe you know the, the comedian Brian Regan. He had this old skit long ago where he talked about Pop-Tarts. And the fact that Pop-Tarts have directions on the package is like the most insulting thing ever. Like it's literally the simplest food ever created. And he asked, what, what would happen if we didn't have directions on the Pop-Tart container? Like, would we just hold the little foil package and ask, how do I get this goodness in me? And it's funny, that phrase has stuck in my mind for so long. How do I get this goodness in me? 
And I said it's odd because that's often how I think about the love of Christ. Like, I know that the Bible says that God loves me. I know it and I, I believe it. it. It is a truth that should absolutely change everything for me. And yet over and over, it just kind of stays in my mind only. It doesn't descend in my heart. And I ask, how do I get this goodness in me? Like, how do I really get the love of Christ deep in my soul so that it, it reorients me from the inside out and, and moves me outward in, in worship and in praise and in service in a totally new way? And so that's what we're looking at this morning, Paul's prayer for inner transformation. We're going to look at three things, our need of inner transformation, the source of inner transformation, and then the essence of inner transformation. So our, our need, the source, and then the essence. And, and at the end, I'm going to give us some, some sort of practical instructions in, in getting there as well. So first of all, the need of inner transformation. You, you learn a lot about somebody by listening to them pray. When, when you hear, and especially if you could get insight into somebody's private prayers, like when, when their mind has nowhere else to go, what, is it, what does it focus on? What do they begin to pray? What do they begin to think about? You can learn a lot about somebody by, by where their mind goes when they get distracted or when it has nowhere else to go. And, and so for Paul, what we're seeing here is sort of where his mind goes in relationship to the church when he's in the middle of, of doing all of his, his teaching and his writing and so forth. And it says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Now, what is, what is that reason? What is the reason he's kneeling before the Father? Now, this comes right after chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, which Pastor Casey taught on last week, where Paul is describing his experience of suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. And he's, he's trying to encourage the church, don't, don't worry about me, you also will face persecution, your life will be filled with suffering. And so he's, he's trying to get this, this reality from our heads down into our hearts, and he prays for them. For this reason, I, I kneel before the Father. Now, think about that posture for a moment. He is, he is kneeling before the Father. Maybe as he's writing from his jail cell, he gets, he gets off the, you know, his little cot and he gets down on his knees and he just can't help but pray for his people that they wouldn't just know God, but that they would experience him and live in him to, to the full measure of, of all that God has for them. But this posture of kneeling, it's significant throughout the scriptures, throughout church tradition. The, the posture of our prayers is often really important. So we see people in, in the scriptures standing to pray. We see them lifting their hands in, in praise and worship. Prayer walking is, is an important practice that, that you may have tried before that helps keep us alert, especially when we're praying for other people or praying for our neighborhoods. But kneeling is probably the most intimate form of prayer. We, we find ourselves on our knees when we are most desperate. Typically, you don't just plan to pray on your knees. You don't think, you know, I'm sitting in my chair, but you know what would really be great is kneeling. Instead, kneeling is more of an, an overflow of, of just a buildup of emotion in your life. So if you are completely desperate, you're overwhelmed, some crushing bad news has just come, you might find yourself on your knees pouring out your heart to God. And that's where Paul is. 
So we know in, in the content of his prayer that, that his whole life is, is in line with the content of his, this prayer, that he understands the implications of everything he's been teaching in Ephesians 1 through 3. And just think about the content of this prayer. It's really interesting. I don't know if you notice that there's three main things that Paul prays or asks for in this prayer. The first one is that Christ would dwell in our hearts. The second is that we would know the love of Christ. And then the third is that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And I think that's odd because he has actually already said each of these three things and that we already have them. He, he says in chapter 1, verse 13, that Christ already dwells in our hearts. He says, you have been included in Christ in salvation. He says that we know the love of Christ because in love, God has chosen us to be redeemed in chapter 1, verse 5. And in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, we've already been filled with the fullness of God because we have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantee inside our hearts. So he's praying for three specific things And yet he's already described in this very letter that we have these three things. So what this shows us is that Paul is praying that the reality that's already true of us would somehow sink deeper into our lives. It's as if he's saying we don't really need anything new. The the people of Ephesus, all, all of us by extension, we don't need new information, but we need the information that we know to truly transform us. To, to sink into our inner beings is the phrase that he uses. He's saying what we know at one level, it's, it's not sufficient. There must be a deeper level of knowledge, even a love that surpasses knowledge. And I don't know if you noticed, the word that he used is that we would, we would grasp the love of Christ. That we would grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ for us. And that word grasp, it's, it's actually sort of a wrestling term, that we would, we would wrestle with the love of Christ. Or even most literally, it means to, to sack a city. So to, to overtake a city in battle, that was to grasp the city in the original Greek. And so Paul is saying that we would wrestle, that we would, we would sort of do a, a violent sort of overtaking of what? Our souls, our inner beings, that we would wrestle with the scriptures on behalf of the core of our beings, that we would take God's word and try to press it down deep into our hearts and truly experience it. Now, this is so important to us at Trinity. We might even say it's our our particular calling as as a church in this city. And it's because we we so passionately believe that it's it's not just enough to know about God and, and to be a Christian. Like we are so dissatisfied with the state of Christianity today. And I think it's mostly a holy discontent. We're we're not satisfied with a Christianity that merely saves people and doesn't change them. We're not satisfied with a Christianity that's mere head knowledge and no transformation, with a life that's unchanged, so we still go about our our old pursuits of worldly success and and comfort and, and pleasure. We're not satisfied with a Christianity that simply wants more Christians. We need a Christianity that produces deeper Christians. 
We're not content with churches that are just about bigger and better and faster, but we want churches that are saturated with the gospel, that love Jesus Christ, that adore him and worship him together, that, that fall on our knees and pray before him because we can't think of anything else to do in relationship to what's true. And so we want to, to strip away all of the layers of sort of Christian culture and, and the religiosity that maybe we grew up with or maybe has, has kept us from Christianity for so long, and we just want God. We want the Holy Spirit. We want the message of Christ, and we, we want it together. We want to experience the truth of Christianity in our souls, in community. We're desperate for it. We're, we're hungry for it. And what we say so often is this, that this inner transformation or this inner renewal, it leads to the renewal of a congregation and of a people. And what that does is it, it positions us to bring about the renewal of all things in the world, which God has already promised to bring about. As we often say, personal renewal leads to congregational renewal, leads to citywide renewal. That's the vision of this church. And so we, we need this inner transformation. And, and the question becomes, how do we get it? Where, where do we find it? What is the source of inner transformation? Now in verse 16, we get into the real meat of the prayer. Paul says, I pray that out of God's glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so Paul is on his knees begging God that out of the glorious riches of, of God's character, his nature, the, the things that are true of him, out of his glorious riches, may he pour out a, a blessing on us. May he strengthen you with his very own power. Now, Paul, whenever he's praying for power, whenever he's talking about power, he almost always uses this phrase, power through his Holy Spirit. When we see power in the New Testament, it's almost always synonymous with the person of the Holy Spirit. And the source of inner transformation is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the source. That's where it comes from. When Pastor Tim Keller says of this verse that Paul is praying for a spiritual inner sensitivity to gospel truth, that the Holy Spirit would make us sensitive to the things of his word, sensitive to the gospel of our forgiveness and our resurrection in Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He makes us sensitive to the things of God so that we might understand them and that we might actually know God on a personal level. And I would say, I believe Paul is showing us that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is the primary difference between a, a dry believer and a fully alive believer. Whether we know it or not, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding in our lives and our sensitivity to him that wakes us up to God's word, wakes us up to the needs of others around us, wakes us up to the needs of the world. Earlier in the series, we looked at all of the references to the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, and we asked, what is it that the Spirit does? Just according to Ephesians. 
And we put those things into four categories. The Spirit is a seal and guarantee of our eternal life. That's the first thing. The second is that the Spirit reveals God and reveals His Word to us. The third is that the Spirit brings about unity in the church. We see each other as Christ sees us, and that builds unity in our midst. And then fourth, the Spirit empowers us to become like Christ, filled with the very power of God to to be remade in the image of God, inwardly transformed, fully alive, outwardly demonstrating faith and good works. That's what the Spirit does in our lives. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh any longer, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. In verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. I love that verse so much. The same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is now dwelling in each and every one of you to raise you from the dead so that you might walk in newness of life as well. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so the Spirit's power transforms us into the likeness of Christ, raises us from the dead, fills us with his very own power. It's the Holy Spirit that, in the words of Psalm 34, allows us to taste and see that God is good. To not just know that God is good, to not just know that fact about him, but to taste and see that the Lord is good. I think of it like sort of kneading the dough. I don't do a lot of baking, but I, my understanding is you've got a pile of flour, whatever it is, and if you need to add an ingredient into it, you don't just sprinkle the ingredient on top. You need to work it into the dough, right? And you're pulling it, you're stretching it, you're pounding it, you're working it over and over until that new ingredient becomes sort of thoroughly dispersed within the dough. Is that right? Am I at least close if you're a baker or you get the picture if I'm not that close? In that illustration, we're trying to get the love of Christ deeper into our hearts, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's kneading the dough, that's pulling us and stretching us and working the Word of God into us, introducing this new element into our lives until it is pervasive in our being. And so the source of inner transformation, it's the Holy Spirit. But then what's the essence? What is that that sort of new ingredient that's being worked into us? That's the third thing, the essence of inner transformation. And the answer is the love of Christ. What the Holy Spirit is, is pressing into us at all times is the love of Christ. Verse 17, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the fullness of all the fullness of God, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul uses the word power three times, and he uses the word love three times in the same little paragraph of a prayer. Because we don't often think of power and love as as going together that often, right? And yet what Paul is doing is he's saying, I pray that the very Spirit of God, this same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the death, all-powerful, I pray that he would empower you And if you pause right there and and had to fill in the prayer yourself, we might say that that we would be empowered to share our faith, to go and make disciples, to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. But that's not what Paul prays right here. He says, may you have all the power of the Holy Spirit to know that Jesus loves you. And that's it. I might even say that that we need that power, the power to know that Jesus loves us even more. It takes more power and strength on the part of the Holy Spirit to get the love of Christ deep into our souls than it takes to to send us out to do good works and and to further the kingdom of God. Because you can can do all of those things sort of from the, the external part of your being, but we need an inner transformation. The love of Christ is the essence of that transformation. Paul says it in two ways. Be rooted and established in love. That's the first thing. And he's giving us two images there. Be rooted in love. That's the image of a tree whose roots go down deep under the earth. And and like the tree in Psalm 1, it's drawing on these hidden resources of living water. May you be rooted in the love of Christ. And second, he says, may you be established in love. And established there is the the picture of a foundation. So not only may you be a tree with deep roots, but may you be a building with a sturdy foundation. And that foundation is the love of Christ. So that you will never move when the storm comes, when when the winds blow and the rains fall like it's doing right now. You won't be knocked off of your foundation Because the love of Christ is the firmest possible foundation. And the second thing is to grasp. He prays that we might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To to grasp for it, to wrestle with it, to to work it into our souls with with the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I think Paul's saying that until you do these things, until the love of Christ is the the roots to your tree, until it's the foundation to your building, you'll you'll never experience the fullness of, of Christianity, never experience the life that God has designed for us. Until that happens, until our our roots are in the love of Christ, until our foundation is the love of Christ, until we're grappling with it at all times. Something else will always be in that place. Some pursuit of of comfort or or success or status, some some love of self will take the place of the love of Christ in our hearts. And we'll find ourselves sort of disoriented and, and operating as if we don't have anything in the center. I don't know about you, but I love the phrase, I've probably already said it four times, how wide How long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ? 
true power, according to this passage, is intimately knowing the love of Christ. Not just knowing about it, not just knowing it casually, but understanding the the very dimensions of the love of Christ. Some of you know we've been uh, having our basement finished. We had an unfinished basement in our house. We've lived in this house for three, three and a half years. Uh, And to be honest, when our basement was unfinished, I, I just hardly ever went down there. I mean, there was nothing really down there. We had just some stuff for the kids, a punching bag, swing, that kind of thing. So they could go down there and just go wild. I maybe went down there like once a week, you know? So I know it's there. I'm thankful for it. It, it adds a little bit of value to our house, but it's, it's not really a daily reality to me, you know? Now, since we've been renovating it and we have a, a general contractor because I have a, a firm grasp on my limitations as a human being, but I, I've been down there so much more in the last you know, four or five weeks, measuring walls, you know, measuring the, the heights of the ceiling and where we're going to have vents put in, you know, picking out with, with Jesse the, the sink and the, the shower tub and the mirrors. We've got to pick out the lighting and pick where each of the lights go. You know, we get to choose where all of the outlets go. And as a result of all this, my, my knowledge of the basement has, has been totally changed. It's the same basement, you know, but now my relationship to it is, is so much different because I understand its dimensions. The one thing that we've done is painting. Can I just tell you this one second? We painted on Thursday. All day Thursday, we painted the basement, all right? We woke up Friday morning. We painted it white, beautiful, crisp white. Wake up Friday morning, and it's lime green, like literally like mint green. So we call the paint store, go back in. They're like, ah, yeah, sometimes that happens. It's a weird thing that happens when you got the paint and the color. We'll replace it for you. I'm like, will you repaint it for me? Because that would be great. But now that I've, I've been working in this basement, I've got to repaint it again. I understand its dimensions. I have a newfound appreciation for it. I can tell you the width and the height and the, the length of these things. It's a reality to me now. And it's the same with the love of Christ. As long as we have a a casual knowledge of the love of Christ, we might even be thankful for it. We might be glad that it's there. It provides us a little bit of security. But until we know how, how wide it is, how long it is, how high it is, how deep is the love of Christ, we won't be changed by it. Now, I want to close with a few practical things. What does it look like to sort of increase our our time spent in the space? If I can continue that illustration, how do we spend more time in the space so that the dimensions of Christ's love become ever more important to us? How do we get this love of Christ in us? Now, a few points of application. The first one is this, to slow down and make time. Slow down and and make time. We've already seen that Paul is is describing a a knowledge plus experience type of Christianity, an experience of Christ that it's not around knowledge, but it does surpass knowledge. Knowledge is the base, but he's calling us to a deeper life in Christ. To do that, I think we have to slow down as a people. I don't know about you, but it is so hard to to turn off the racing thoughts, the inner dialogue, the the hurry that is just consuming my life so often. I think hurry is maybe the most addictive substance in all the world. If you've been in a hurry for a long time, it is so, so hard to slow down and make time. 
but I'm convinced that without slowing down, we don't have much hope for inner transformation taking root in our hearts. Now, I, I feel this a lot when, when I have to answer too many questions. I hate un, uh, uh, you know, unnecessary questions. My biggest thing right now is when I go to get gas at the gas station, have you noticed that they're asking you like seven questions at the pump? You know, what kind of gas would you like? Are you using credit or debit? Do you have a PIN number? Do you have a loyalty card? Would you like a receipt? Would you like a car wash? How would you describe your childhood? I'm like, it's, it should be swipe the card and get the gas, end of transaction, and yet I'm still here pressing the darn button, and it, and it grinds my gears because I'm, I'm in a hurry. Like, you don't leave an extra 30 seconds for all these questions. Like, I've got the exact time to get to the place that I'm going. And I realize as I'm standing there, like, man, I am in such a hurry. My entire posture as a human being is hurry. And I want to suggest that hurry is an environment that quenches the Holy Spirit. It's really hard to experience the love of Christ when you're in a hurry. When you're moving from one place to another, usually when I'm in a hurry, like I think about if I'm, if I'm driving fast in a hurry, it's because I don't want to be late. Why? Because I want people to think that I'm on time. Why? Because I want people to think that I have it all together. Why? Because I want people to value me. I mean, you bring it back to the end. And at the very base of things, I don't really live in the love of Christ. And the overflow of that is hurry. And so we have to cut that off, slow down, and make time. Now, number two, feed your inner being. Now, this is the knowledge bit. This is where we recognize that knowledge of God, knowledge of his word, it, it is essential. Now, we're talking about surpassing it as the passage does, but you only surpass it when you fully understand and have knowledge of God and his word. And the prayer is that may God strengthen you with power in your inner being. And that's where we take the, the Word of God, and, and we're not just racing through it, we're not just only reading it to comprehend it, but we're reading it in, in a deep way to, to feed our inner being in the words of Paul. I've read a, a biography of this old Christian missionary, George Mueller. He's got an incredible life, and he describes in one place how he was struggling through prayer until he had a change of perspective. I love this quote. He says, I now see that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about is not how I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. The first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning, he says, is to obtain food for the inner man. Now, what is the food for the inner man? He writes, it's not prayer, it's the word of God. And here again, not the simple reading of the word of God so that it passes through our minds as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, applying it to our hearts. Now, you know, we have made the the Dwell app available to you guys as a congregation. If you haven't done that, I think we've got some more codes, but the Dwell app is a way to listen to Scripture. There are incredible readers. There's all the translations. You can get readers from like whatever country you want. It's phenomenal, and it's a way for you to, to saturate your mind with the words of Scripture. 
Uh, my wife has even on the back end set up a way to have a, a psalm of the day. So today's the 14th. It'll give you five psalms every day. So the four, 14th psalm, 44th, 74th, and so on. So that you can, you can have your mind shaped by Scripture every day. Now the third thing is to pray with others. The passage says that we might be strengthened together with all the Lord's holy people. We've said this probably every Sunday for the last few years, but community is essential to depth in Christ. To go deep in the Lord is not a solitary pursuit, but it's a communal, a a relational pursuit. And so praying with others does something that merely praying on our own can't do. It teaches us how to pray, but it also focuses our prayer. It, It builds community around our souls as we pray together especially if you find yourself in a place of dryness. Don't try to get out of it alone. Most likely what got you there was doing life alone. So get some people around you. Pray with your community group. In in our group, we have these kind of smaller groups of two, three, or four, people that will get together during the week or the month to pray. And I, I love when that happens. But find some people to pray with. Wrestle with the love of Christ together. Number four, this, I'm going to make this brief, do hard things. You know, Paul is in the midst of incredible suffering, incredible persecution. He's riding into a people who are in a, a secular, dangerous city of Ephesus. It's, it's kind of the pagan worship center of the early, you know, Greco-Roman world. And so their lives are immersed in suffering. And I think this prayer makes sense when it's being written to people who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, but it's, we can lose a lot if, we're, if our lives are, are totally kind of bubble-wrapped with comfort and, and ease and, and all the things we do to kind of wall off the outside things. But by doing the hard things, building relationships with difficult people, sharing your faith with your coworkers and neighbors, Serving the Lord, giving money away, doing things that put you in a position of need so that you actually find yourself on your knees praying for help. Without doing hard things, your prayer life is is probably always going to be a little dry and stagnant. We often say here the problem for us in prayer is not a lack of discipline, it's a lack of dependence. Our problems are that we're not, it's not that we're not disciplined enough, it's that we're not overwhelmed with life enough that we are so completely dependent on the Lord in prayer. All right, the last thing, number five. I never have five points of application, but thanks for hanging with me. Number five, meditate on the cross. I hope you've noticed by now that Paul's prayer is not that we would grasp the love of God in a general sense, but that we would grasp the love of Christ. Now, why does he use that particular phrase? Because he wants us to grasp the love of Christ expressed and demonstrated to us at the cross. When we look at the cross, we we see with incredible clarity the love of Christ. Without looking at the cross, without meditating on the cross, it'll never sink down deep into our hearts. We'll never get the love of Christ into us. And so let's just finish by thinking about this. How, How wide is the love of Christ. Well, it's wide enough for anyone and everyone who would turn to him. 
There is nothing that you could have done in the past. There is nothing that you could be doing right now, no thoughts, nothing that you could do in the future that could exclude you from from the width of the love of Jesus. It is for anyone and everyone who would turn to him. It's wide enough to embrace you exactly as you are. How long is the love of Christ? How, how long is the love of Christ? No matter, no matter what you've done, but no matter what you will do, no matter how you might need to turn back to Christ a thousand times a day for the rest of your life, the love of Christ is still with you. Every moment, every day, for all eternity, Jesus says, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The love of Christ is always longer still. Now, how high is the love of Christ? How high is the love of Christ? It's as high as Christ is above us. Christ is the risen from the dead, ascended into the heavens, exalted on high on a throne, Son of God. And as high as he is above us, so high is his love for us. Higher than we could ever possibly imagine. That's how high the love of Jesus is is for us. It reaches down from the heavens all the way to the depths of our souls. But how deep is it? How deep is the love of Christ? You know, underwater biologists have said that the the ocean floor is still largely, um, you know, unexplored. It's just simply too vast. They've explored all of these trenches and done the, you know, little sonar or whatever. But for the most part, most of the ocean floor on our globe is still unexplored. They don't know what creatures are down there. They don't know how deep it is. And it's the same with the love of Christ. We, we will never fully explore the depth of God's love for us. No matter how deep we go, how often we go, how long we explore its dimensions, the love of Christ will always be deeper than we can comprehend. Now, in many commentaries, many readers of this verse throughout history have noticed that Paul is giving us, in this expression, a picture of the cross. Because Jesus, on the cross, his arms were were hung out wide and long. He was stretched out high and deep as he hung on the cross to pay for our sins. The cross itself is the picture of, of the width and the depth and the height and the length of Christ's love for us all the way to the cross. And so this, in summary, is how inner transformation happens. Paul's prayer is that you would grasp with the power of the Holy Spirit the love of Christ for you demonstrated on the cross. That you would be empowered through the very power of the Holy Spirit to know the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross. And that's how we change. That's how inner transformation takes place in our hearts. The only possible proper response to this is what we see in the last two verses. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory within the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray.